job. That was epic. <clears throat> wow. Um, I told first service, this was one of those days, and I know we all have those days when you wake up, like, you're supposed to start the day with kind of a full tank, and some days you start the day with an empty tank. That's a bad sign. You have those days? And uh, so I came prepared to, uh, you know, let God work through an empty tank this morning. And uh, man, sitting in, being led by that team this morning, I was, by the end of it, I was full to overflowing and, and ready. That was just so good. And, and I, was, I, I said, I mean, I've, I've worked with Elizabeth for nine, ten years and um, knew she had a great voice. I've heard her sing in the van when we're driving places or whatever. Um, but I was blown away by her presence on stage, the joy and just, so I hope you, that, what a, what a great time of leadership this morning. Thank you guys. They're probably all out there, but whew. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So, and I would tell you what a powerful, um, as, as John went through and, and crafted that, those series of songs together for us with that message, um, man, what a great, powerful um, and the testimony of the truth that if, if, we, if we will trust Him, He will heal those wounds. Um, man, what a great, powerful... Some of, some of you need to hear that again and again. Some of us need to hear... We all need to hear it again and again. But there's plenty of people who still don't buy it. That It's just the truth, the grace that He offers. And instead we run and hide and it's, it's oh, oh, coming to Him. Anyway, well, yesterday we did a, our rites of passage... Um, seminar thing in the morning, Chris Sheridan and I did, which was great. I got something for you, Chris. Make sure and come get it for me by the end of the, the service. Um, uh, it was great. And of course, after three hours of teaching, we had, I don't know, maybe three hours of material left we could have covered. And so we'll have to do that again. And uh, for those of you who are there, I know, it was, I know you were blessed by it. Um, it will be online, and I would really love for everyone in the church at some point to engage with that. I want um, very much, I would love to see rites of passages be something that is integrated into our church to come alongside families, that families are doing those and trained to do those and equipped to do those intentionally, and that as a church, we're coming alongside those families and actually doing some that only maybe the church can do um, in coming alongside the family. So uh, anyway, so that's, that's where we are excited about that. So we're back in, in Daniel chapter 8, and in Daniel chapter 8, um, uh, we, we kind of worked up to a certain point. We were looking at this second of a series of visions and dreams that Daniel has, and in this service, um, we wrapped up at a different place. Um, there's a couple of stories. For, for whatever reason, I talked really fast. First service just listens better last week than y'all did, and so uh, um, that was, I don't mean that. It's not meant to be mean. Sorry. The uh, the uh, they the, I got I got like two or three extra pages of. No, I, I have no idea why. We were all trying to figure out how that happened or why it happened. So they got a couple of stories today you won't get. So you have to ask them about, for example, the MC Hammer story. But because um, you're not going to get to hear it. But the the as we're as we're picking up where we were in chapter eight, um, going through this this vision, and as as the angel is unpacking the vision for Daniel, and so we had just gotten through that section. Um, really where the Greek, uh, Alexander the Great, has, has probably gone to Jerusalem, tried to, was going to conquer it, didn't, maybe because, in fact, of the vision that he had had of the, great, of the high priest of Jerusalem. Um, and so we were picking up there after Alexander the Great. After Alexander the Great, if you remember, there's this, these horns that come out, and then after these horns come out, so his horn is broken off, and these four horns come out, and then from one of those horns, another horn grows, 
which is kind of weird. Um, but that's where we are. These four horns are, are beautifully fit. The prophecy is beautifully fulfilled in the four kingdoms that rise up from four of Alexander the Great's generals, his commanders. Um, they are, uh, I think I mentioned them last time. Let me see if I've got them handy here. Um, the uh, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, those four. And then as we're looking at them, at first, the area of Israel, the Judean region, is, is owned by the, the Ptolemy branch of the Greeks. And just like Alexander, under his leadership, the Jews were kind of allowed to live in peace. Just, just take care of yourselves, don't bother anybody, pay your taxes to the Greek central governments, and we'll leave you alone. But at some point, another branch took over, because remember, they were fighting against each other all the time, the Seleucus. And then the story began to change. So we're particularly interested in them, and they have what's called the Seleucid Empire. Do you have that, David? He's probably trying to figure out exactly where I am in the sermon at this point. Perfect. Um, And so the Seleucid Empire, at its greatest, took over this section. It was obviously very powerful, um, and that included Judea. Um, And the the kings of the Seleucid Empire, there are numerous of them, in 223 B.C., the sixth king, so 223 B.C. So remember, Daniel's around 600 B.C. So now we're 223 B.C., almost 400 years later. The sixth king was Antiochus III, the Great. Um, He fought against other Greek leaders, of course, because that's what they did, and the rising Roman Empire that was becoming powerful in his time. You probably, all you probably really need to know about Antiochus III is that his title, Antiochus III the Great, was a self-proclaimed title. He called himself Antiochus the, No one else did, just him. So he was Antiochus the Great according to him. Verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom. So here we are, we're at the latter end of the Seleucid kingdom, and, and we, that's actually right. By this time, the slow destruction of the Seleucid Empire at the hands of the Romans was very much so an ongoing deal. The war with the Romans had begun in 192 and had not, was really going in 192. By the end, the empire lasted, the Seleucid Empire would last 259 years before the Romans finally crushed it. Keep in mind, so the Seleucid Empire was around for 259 years. America has been around for 244 years, just to give you a, a context of how long that is. That's a meaningful amount of time, Okay. So verse 23, the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limits. This is not probably the transgressors, meaning the bad guys, the Greeks. This is when my people, remember the people, God's own people are in exile because of their sin. And so they're being punished because of their sin and the transgressions at the end of the Seleucid Empire of the Hebrews under their rule was pretty extreme, especially from a religious perspective. Listen to this. When God has determined that the wickedness, probably of His own people, had continued to reach new heights and had finally reached its apex, when it had peaked, things were going to change. Here's where it was at this time when Antiochus Epiphanes shows up. The high priesthood had been sold to a man named Joshua. Now that right there should concern you. The high priesthood had been sold. The Greeks were selling the high priesthood in Jerusalem to the highest bidder. Joshua immediately changes his name to Jason, which is the Greek name. Jason allegedly built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. And you're like, I mean, that's that's nice, right? I mean, 
they could now work out. So the Greek gymnasium is a special place. Um, it comes from the, the Greek root word here, where we get gym, comes from the word naked. Because that's how the Greeks practiced sports. The original Olympics were all done in the nude. So you, you thought they dressed scantily today, right? You're, you're like, I can't believe they're wearing that in public. No, no, they didn't wear that in public in the original. Um, and so you can imagine, if this is accurate, in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the Jewish people who prize greatly the concept of modesty that you would have had the Greeks and Jews practicing Greek sports in the nude. Not, not okay. He also then created a Greek cultural center of town in Jerusalem. He was then outbid for this role by a relative of his, Manelus, who, who, so he outbid him with the Greeks. When the Greeks showed up to collect their money for this outbidding of the high priest role, Manelus sold off the temple items to pay his debt to the Greeks. So all the gold temple items he then sold out of the temple in an effort to pay the Greeks what he owed them in his bid to become the high priest. Not cool. Um, so when another official complained about this, Manelis had him killed, murdered. To further distract from what he was doing, he accused the people of Jerusalem of being allied to the Egyptians against the Seleucid king, and the Seleucids executed many dozen Jewish people who were totally innocent because of the false accusation of the high priest. Always be keeping track, but we're closing in on all ten at this point. Okay, he's broken pretty much all ten of the Ten Commandments. He is peaking, and that's as the high priest in his role at high priest. He is he is going systematically through breaking the Ten Commandments as if he's got a checklist. The high priest. Soon, Greek worship was encouraged in the temple in Jerusalem to Yahweh. Now, the third part of that verse, a king of bold face, face who one who understands riddles shall arise. Now, this is an interesting terminology, one who understands riddles. Probably a euphemism or a, an idiom, like when we say it's raining cats and dogs, no one's afraid of animals falling out of the sky. Probably when this idea of understanding riddles means someone who is gifted at strategy, at trickery, at dishonesty. Someone who is sneaky like a fox. So let's go back to the original vision, verse 9. If you remember correctly, we're going back and forth between the vision and the interpretation by Gabriel. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground and will act and prosper. Man, that, that phrase just leapt out of me this time. It will throw truth to the ground. This is, a, this is a symbol of the Antichrist always. One of the roles of the Antichrists throughout history is to throw truth to the ground. To the degree we are embracing truth, we are following the God of truth. To the degree we are seeking to throw truth to the ground and bury it, we're serving the Antichrist. For us to be able to set free in truth is one of the ways that God heals us, um, which is a powerful testimony anybody who's experienced it could have. So the son of the great, the guy who called himself the great, Antiochus Epiphanes, he starts ruling in 175 B.C., so well into the Roman War. 
He was the eighth king after his older brother was assassinated. Um, he was actually probably connected, by the way, to Antiochus Epiphanes. He was actually co-regent with a son of his brother, who was an infant in 150, 175 B.C. So, in, in great patience, Antiochus Epiphanes waits until the child is five before having him murdered, so that he is the, his, own, his own nephew murdered, and so that he can be king by himself. That's who we're dealing with, right? High-caliber dude. Okay, so he had campaigns to the east and west, of course, and to the Holy Land. He's famous, and you have to love this, he's famous for almost conquering Egypt. There you go. That's a good thing to be famous for is almost doing something. And, of course, for persecuting the Jews. In fact, no one, in most, unless you're taking a specific history class of this era, you won't hear of Antiochus Epiphanes, as powerful and great as he was, unless you're studying Daniel or the Maccabees, or, or like I said, you're a student of this period of time, um, because that's what he's famous for is, is persecuting the Jews. People who worked under him gave him the affectionate nickname Antiochus Epimenes, which means crazy or madman, okay? So that's always, that's nice. He's, he clearly is an antichrist. He is of a type. We talked about it from 1 John, how the word antichrist is in plural, this antichrist's mindset, this idea that there's, there's two kingdoms. Satan, in his utter lack of creativity, can only break, twist, or copy what God has created. If you have this image in your mind, if you're one of those, one of the, if you're a Christian who's under the impression or your belief is that there's two great gods, there's this great evil God named Satan and this great good God named God and, or Yahweh or Jesus Christ, and, you're, and, and you pit them and they're like, oh, they're in this great wrestling match. That is not the truth. Satan is a created being. He is absolutely limited in every way. Only God is unlimited. God creates, He envisions, He speaks into existence. All Satan can do is twist what God has made or inspire or tempt us to twist what God has made. God makes something good. Satan is always going to offer counterfeits, but that's all he can do. Satan could never invent a Rolex, but he could inspire a bunch of people to sell Rolexes on the side of the road for $10 a pop. That's the best he can do. They're not a real Rolex. If you're getting it for 10 bucks. It's, not, it's going to turn your arm green. But it looks a little like one, and it feels a little like one, and in the moment you can fool yourself into thinking it's a little like one, but it is not the good thing that God has created. This is the best Satan can offer. So he looks over at God like a little kid who's driving the little car steering wheel with a little beep-beep horn while the dad is over here really driving, and he goes, I'm driving too. See, I'm driving. He says, I've got a kingdom. You've got the kingdom of heaven. Well, I've got a kingdom. It's this kingdom on the world that I'm going to, I'm going to run the show here. And God sends his son, and Satan goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, I've got little incarnate sons as well. These little antichrists who I drop, and I bestow top power on them, and they run my kingdom on earth. That's all he can do is copy. Antiochus Epiphanes is one of these counterfeit son kings on earth that Satan gives power to. We see multiple of them throughout history. That's what we're talking about when we talk about this rotation of these antichrists, these people who Satan inspires and empowers to lead. He's the power behind them. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, is not the most important king, even of the Seleucids, which most of, probably many of us have never heard of until we're studying Daniel, unless you lived in Judea and Sumeria, in which case Antiochus Epiphanes was the devil. He leaves a failed campaign in Egypt and comes back to Judea to find these two high priests essentially in civil war against each other. 
They've now barred the door to one another, and Antiochus Epiphanes takes this as the door, the door being barred to him. And he's not okay with that. So in a city that may have had 100,000 total citizens, he brings an army of 46,000 foot soldiers, 8,500 cavalry, and 300 armored elephants. Because why not? They probably look like the stars of heaven to the people of Jerusalem as this massive army encircles them and begins to move in. It tells us that he makes war even against the prince of hosts. I think this is, this is the archangel Michael. We talked about the archangel Gabriel last time. Um, I'm going to break down and unpack more who the archangel Michael is um, when we get to chapter 10 because he has a, an interesting role there when we're talking about the divine counsel. But we get this reference. The reason I think it's him is from Daniel 12.1 which begins, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. I think that's who Antiochus Epiphanes, eventually the power behind the power, eventually Satan is going to raise his fist through Antiochus Epiphanes himself against the archangel Michael himself. And we'll see in a few minutes how that eventually works out. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Verse 25, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Kind of like his dad, right? In his own mind he shall become great. Protect us from everybody in our minds. Amen. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise prince of princes and he shall be broken. But by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but the vision for it refers to many days from now. Many days from now. Again, from the moment of this prophecy, the first time we see it fulfilled at Antiochus is about 400 years. And, and many, we talk about that intertestamental period, which there's a, they overlap here. I agree that this was 400 years of what? Silence. You did too, apparently. It is silent in that there is no canonized scripture from that period of time. We're going to do this, but this was not a time when God was inactive. It wasn't like God was going like, you know what, for these next few hundred years, I'm just going to kind of take a break and play out the way they're going to until I send Jesus. No, God was involved in the work of His people. All of the, all of the account of the fulfillment of Daniel is happening during those 400 years of silence. So to call that silence is absurd. Of course, God is working. He is fulfilling a prophecy that he made 400 years before this. Um, let me read from, how did this seem to the Jewish people? Let me read from the book of 2 Maccabees. I'm going to explain Maccabees a little bit more here in a second. But here we go. 2 Maccabees chapter 5, raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. So in a population of about 100,000, 80,000 were killed or sold out of the city. That's unthinkable. A lot of what we get about this madman comes from the perspective of those he persecuted in the books of Maccabees. So in a minute, we're going to look at a little more detail of those. But for now, know that Epiphanes, at this point, set up a statue of Zeus in the temple, outlawed all Jewish religious practices, circumcision, dietary laws, and, of course, temple activities. 
And it's accepted that he sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense at this point as well, somewhere in here. Now, obviously, the sacrifice to any Greek god on the altar of incense in the temple to Yahweh is deeply offensive and is an apex of the sins and transgressions. But, of course, he takes an unclean animal and sacrifices a pig intentionally on the altar to destroy its worship power at all. Now, as Christians, we would, have, we would say that at the time of Ezekiel, God had already left, His presence had already left the temple. His presence was no longer being worshipped correctly in the temple. And we have prophecies that talk about that. But this is, this is a powerful, destructive time for them. It's horrifying to these people. Verse 13 reminds us, this is part of the original vision, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular... Uh, so naturally, the next part of the vision is going to be about this, right? This temple being shut down. Um, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Now look at this verse. I love this. That, that, so... Weird things stand out to me in passages like this. I don't know if they do to you as well, but strange things do. I don't know that we would have had a really great context for this until the last six months or so, but here's what I realized. So Daniel is being given this vision, and Gabriel, who is in the vision with him, is explaining it to him. That's the whole population. There's the voice from the waters, Daniel, and Gabriel in the vision. But apparently, in this Zoom call of a vision... There were at least two other people in the meeting who Daniel didn't know were there, and they forgot to mute their mic before they asked each other a question. This is exactly how this feels to me. Daniel's sitting there with Gabriel, and they're talking, and Gabriel's explaining to him, and all of a sudden there's this voice that says, hey, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? There's a holy being who's now talking, and they're talking to another one of the holy beings. They're talking to each other. And this, the picture of this, I think, is perfect. And so then he's asked, this, well, of course, that's what he asked. But this is not either Daniel or Gabriel. Someone else is watching, and, the, and that's the, this is the question they want answered. How long is this going to last? What's the situation? Of course, this is the question. And this is where the Maccabees come in. Um, we have accounts from the books of Maccabees. So the books of Maccabees are a series of books written by different authors with various agendas related to the history or the people, or the poetry, or the philosophy of those events connected to the Maccabean Revolt, which was against the Greeks. There's a total of eight of them. They're not, they're not, apparently, they're not always booked that way, but there's a total of like eight of them. And the first two are included in many uh, Christian gatherings of documents, although typically not Hebrew ones. Um, these two are included along with five other books, not the books, not the other books of Maccabees, but five other books in the Roman Catholic Bible. So if you're Roman Catholic background and, and you have a Bible from, from the Roman Catholic Church, or if you have friends who are, they're going to have a series of, of about seven, they're going to have seven books in, in the middle of their Bible that are different or in addition to the ones that a Protestant Bible would have, and typically in addition to one that Hebrew Bibles would have as well. Um, and so, in the Roman Catholic world, tradition and Scripture are treated as very almost equal. And so, these books are treated with great respect and great authority in the Roman Catholic world. For us, we would say they are interesting, they're fascinating, they're not inspired Word of God. We don't treat them as authoritative um, like we do the 66 books that we have. But they're still interesting to read and understand. But according to the books of Maccabees, here's how the story went. 
So a Greek officer, now that, that it's been required that there's no Jewish practice of faith, only Greek practices, that a Greek officer goes to a city northwest of Jerusalem called Modin. Now, Modin is truly a tiny little village outside of Jerusalem. It's not even like, you know, Dallas and then Tyler. It's more like Flint, okay? It's a, it's a little place, relatively insignificant, and they tried to enforce Greek worship. So the Greek official shows up, hey, hey, you guys aren't doing Greek worship the way you're supposed to. Y'all need to start doing Greek worship. He doesn't need to bring an army with him. He has the power of the Greek name behind him. So he says this, and Mattathias, the priest of that little region, says, no. So another Jewish member, member of that community steps up and says, I'll lead this, and he begins to start the ceremony of, of worshiping this idol. So Mattathias kills him, and then turns and kills the Greek officer as well. Tearing down, according to 1 Maccabees 2.27, tearing down the idol, Mattathias preached, let everyone who is zealous for the law and who stands by the covenant follow me. He's kind of the brave heart, the Patrick Henry, the, the George Washington, the Robert the Bruce of, of the, the rebellion here to, that, that, it's, that begins right here in this moment with this one man. And the concept of zeal is very, very important to the Hebrew mind. It's important to us too, but I'm going to show you how it's got an interesting factor connected to it in regards to Christianity. Zeal is important. They, they honor when you see something like a man, we see the story in Scripture where a man drives a spear all the way through two people who are involved in inappropriate behavior in an inappropriate place, so he just spears them both to the ground. And that's considered an expression of zeal. It's, 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 a, it's a glorification of the law. We don't play with this. It is the passion, almost recklessness. In fact, in fact, there's a fine line between reckless, meaning the failure to measure, to reckon is to measure, to wreck, the failure to measure, or to measure and pay the cost anyway. And, and there's, a, there's a section here that there's almost like, I mean, when you, when you kill this man and the Greek Lord who has come to impose, the Greek officer who has come to impose Greek law, you have then, in poker terms, gone all in. Right? There's no way out of this. This is it. He has just declared war on the Seleucid Empire. So he begins to gather an army around him. This is the picture. By the way, you remember the concept of zeal. There's one passage. So there's a, a prophecy about the Messiah that, quote, zeal for your house will consume him. Right? And when Jesus puts together the, the cords and the whips and he drives the money changers, the thieves, out of the temple area, that's when his disciples, who never know what's going on, for the first time ever, they're like, hey, 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 I remember this. It says that the zeal for God's house would consume him. And look now. It's, it's, that's what they're talking about is zeal, passion, jealousy, uncompromising, unwavering. Jesus had a follower who's, who is identified as the zealot. The zealots were an organization of people within the kingdom at this time that was fighting. They were fighting for the purity of the, of the Jewish people against the Greeks. Later against the Romans, there'd be a group called the Sicarii 
who were zealots who carried around a little curved dagger everywhere they went in case they ever caught a Roman official or even more so a compromising Jew in a dark alley alone. That's zeal. But there's an interesting connection here in Romans 10. Look at what what the Apostle Paul says about this concept in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So his people are zealous, and he's, he's proud of how zealous they are about the law, but the problem is they're missing something. The zeal is good, but not alone. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, there's a wisdom and a knowledge that comes with the grace and message and gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why we aren't zealous for the law, we are zealous for the grace of Christ, which is a, to- it's a weird type of zeal. It's not the type of zeal that's going to cause you to spear someone to the ground. That's, that's not really normally going to be the correct expression of the zeal of Jesus Christ, because that's not the type of zeal He expressed. Passion, yes, but always measured and counted and followed through with grace and mercy in it. He's driving people out of the temple with a whip, not a sword. His Word is His power, and that's where we find ours as well, through the power of the Spirit. So, this zealous Mattathias in 167 B.C., Antiochus is still alive, by the way. He's picking a fight with the madman himself. Mattathias led a result, revolt and was given the name Maccabees. Maccabees means the hammer. So you automatically, if you're like me, you, rep, you picture this. But now we'll have a little game of who wore it best. An artist rendering of Mattathias is this. Okay. So pretty similar, um, turbans extra. But, but Mattathias, then he begins to lead this revolt. He dies a year later, but one of his sons, Judah, takes over. At first, this was just guerrilla warfare, um, just fighting like, like in, the, in the trees and in the forest. But Antiochus did not take them seriously at this point. So he sends a very small force with an inept general to defeat them. Judah wipes them out. So if you know Antiochus Epiphanes, after just our first talks, you know what Antiochus Epiphanes does next. The next thing he does is send 60,000 soldiers with his best general to conquer this little rebellion. So they show up. The Jewish rebels had maybe 12,000 soldiers. Five to one. They were fighting on terrain they knew, which is certainly a huge advantage. But according to the Maccabees, they repented of their sins and called upon God to bring them about the victory. And so with 12,000 men on the hillsides of Judah, the Maccabees defeated this massive Greek army led by this brilliant general, utterly defeated them. This is the ultimate humiliation for Antiochus Epiphanes. That means he is, he is going to be out of power quickly anyway. Now, he doesn't last long. We don't know exactly how he dies. Some say that he got sick from within um, and that he actually was filled with, with parasites when he died. For whatever reason, at least one historical, set, one historical view says that the combination of sickness and shame led him to, to be rowed out into the middle of the sea and then he jumped out and drowned himself. 
Anyway, Daniel 8.25 says, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great, and without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. This is one of those great examples of a well-trained 60,000-man Greek army And remember that a Greek army of 10,000 defeated Persian armies of hundreds of thousands. And now you have a Greek army of 60,000 going up against a bunch of ragtag rebels in the Judean hillsides, and they lose. That doesn't feel like that was accomplished by human hands. It may be that he offended the prince of princes who sent the prince of hosts, Michael, to defeat Antiochus' army. The armies of Antiochus were utterly defeated. The Greeks were driven completely out of Jerusalem. And on December 25th, 164 B.C., the temple was fully rededicated to Yahweh. And that is celebrated to this day at Hanukkah. The restoration of the temple is the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights as part of it is connected to that. Antiochus had profaned the temple on December 16th, 156 B.C. or so. He had sacrificed a pig on December 15th, 167 B.C. or so, and had committed various atrocities in between them, the forbidding of burnt offerings, the murder of a priest. And then we get Daniel 8, 14, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. So there's the answer for the, the voice who forgot to mute his Zoom call. How long will this go on? Well, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. But there's a problem. 2300 doesn't match up. So 2300 represents about six and a third years, and there's no way to do the math from any of the dates that makes six and a third years work. At least not perfectly. At least not perfectly. Now, why why might that be? There's a lot of reasons. One, um, uh, this type of literature, apocalyptic literature, isn't always uh, meant to be dead on like that, that that's part of the concepts, that numbers can mean other things. They can mean other messages. So some people wrestle with it from that perspective. Part of it is we don't know exactly what day to start with. It doesn't tell us exactly what day to start. Does it start with the conquering, with the Greeks conquering the city? Does it start with Antiochus Epiphanes ending the temple service? Does it begin with him sacrificing the pig, which was almost a decade later? Like exactly when do we start counting? That creates a problem for us. You can imagine this is the kind of thing that people write doctoral theses on in seminaries. So I got to read read one that made an excellent case for this. When you see the phrase for 2,300 evenings and mornings, as a good Jewish audience, certain things should begin to come to your mind. When you hear the phrase evenings and mornings, what do you begin to think of? Anything? When do you see that phrase in the Bible? Creation right? Evenings and mornings. So you have the evening and the morning, and that's day one. And then you have the evening and the morning, and that's day two, etc., right? Well, there's an application that the Jewish people took from that. Days are broken into two parts, evening and morning. That's how they do it, evening and morning. You really want to get confused, go to Israel where they start the day in the evening, and they end the day in the morning. It's very confusing for us Westerners. It makes a lot of sense. It means they're resting to, before their day begins. We collapse into our beds at the end of the day, right? They start with the evening. Sunset begins a day. So what we would call Friday at sunset, 
That's Saturday evening. Then you have Saturday morning, and then you have Sunday evening. This, it makes the whole resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ make more sense, the timelines, when you understand this. don't want to get off on this too far. But so because of this, they had a practice that they did. What, what, what else happens evening and morning? I know? The Jewish people? Quiet. Yes, the sacrifices. You have the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. This guy's whole seminary paper makes the argument that this is not 2,300 days, this is 2,300 sacrifices, or about three years and 60 days-ish. Well, the gap to the day between the ending of the temple sacrifice and it being reinstated is probably about three years and ten days-ish. At that point, you're close enough that there's more likely we're making a calendar or math error based on not understanding the math that long ago, that you're within now 40 days, and honestly, especially freaky if you're exactly 40 days, um, off from that, which would tell you that there's a lesson to be taught and that there's a completion to be done there. At that point, now we're looking at dates that begin to make a lot of sense. So it's intriguing. We're going to run into some, some, some dates later that are going to weird you out a little bit, I promise, and with some of the other chapters. So we don't know. We, maybe it's just this, Daniel 8, 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true. This, this is um, Gabriel talking. But seal up that vision, for it refers to many days from now. So maybe the whole vision isn't what he's saying to seal, but just the 2,300 days part of the vision. And maybe that part wasn't during the 400 years. Maybe the coincident, maybe the nearness of time of the temple being shut down is coincidental. And then instead, that's talking about something else. A lot of times days equal years in biblical prophecy. And so maybe what we're supposed to be doing is counting down 2,300 years from some significant event. Maybe from, if it's from this time, then we're closing in. If it's from uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, when the temple is destroyed, maybe the year 2370 is going to be a big year for everybody who's around for that. We don't know. We also don't know for sure that it was December 25th. Some say December 10th. That would get us closer. Do we don't know? Actually, we don't know for sure, even if it was 164 or 165 BC, though most people claim 164. So again, if you're sitting there going, this is giving me a headache. Well, you and Daniel both. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now he doesn't understand it. Now granted, he doesn't, he's 400 years before Antiochus Epiphanes. So he doesn't, he's not going to get to see the first go-around, or at least maybe the, maybe the first go-around of this vision being fulfilled. It's going to be another couple of hundred years before a second go-around when Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem and does a lot of the same things where that happens. He's not going to be around for Adolf Hitler. He's not going to be around for the, for the, the Muslim invasion. He's not going to be around for these different things that, that could all be also fulfillments of some of these very same events, and I believe are in different ways. But Daniel is sitting here experiencing this, and I love the, the reality of Daniel that we get to know him. I don't know about you guys, but when I, when I read fiction, and often now, and because I don't have as much time to read fiction, I listen to fiction. Um, and so, you know, you, you get, I'll get a book, an audio book, and I read, listened to one not long ago that was a total of like 90 hours 
of listening through this book. And I get to the end of a book like that, and it's over, and I'm just heartbroken. I'm like, I, I, I miss those people. Like, we went through a lot together. Where, do you, where are you now? Like, I'm, I'm very sad and kind of brokenhearted when, I, when I'm done with a, a book like that. I feel that way very much about Daniel. I feel like I'm getting to know this guy. You guess feel that? The sense of, like, I'm getting to know this person, Daniel. He doesn't have some great collapse like David does, or, or he doesn't... He doesn't deny his Lord, and, but he is so human. And at the end of this event, at the end of this vision, here you have him spending three days just on his face, on his back, exhausted and sick. And something struck me this week that had never, I'd never seen before. As I'm reading through this last verse, who is king at this point? You remember from back at the beginning of chapter 8? Who's king during the vision of chapter 8? Remember, it's Belshazzar, the idiot grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who, as far as we know, has nothing to do with Daniel for the three years of his reign. He doesn't seem to know who Daniel is when the writing on the wall scene happens, right? Look at what Daniel says here. I was overcome and lay sick for some days. Why? Why did he get up? Then I rose. Why did he get up? to go do the king's business. As far as we know, I only know of one time when Daniel does the business of Belshazzar the king. Only one time when when Belshazzar the king calls Daniel from his rooms. Can you imagine that what may have happened here is that Daniel has this vision. He's, He's sick for several days. He's exhausted. He's worn out. He's appalled by what he's seen. And then the word of the king comes, <clears throat> hey, Belshazzar wants you. And Daniel comes walking into this room where this big party is being held, and there's writing on the wall, and the writing on the wall essentially says, what I just told you was going to happen, it's now. That ram with the two horns, yeah, that starts now. The Daniel comes out of that experience and immediately comes into this room, and that's why Daniel's so calm about all of it. Like, oh yeah, look, it's happening. Just like he said. In fact, it's twice, the Medes and the Persians. Wow, this is exactly what he said was going to happen just a few days ago in the vision. What a cool thought if Daniel is experiencing it right together like that. Makes one of those like hair on the back of your neck type of things, at least it does for me. The timing of it. God, God offering up to Daniel the comfort in advance I know what I'm doing. I know what is coming. Daniel gets to walk into the room where God has had written on the wall that a kingdom is ending around his ears and a new kingdom is starting and everything about world history is about to change and Daniel goes, huh, what he said. Just exactly the power of prophecy intended. So for us, that when we, I, I cannot imagine a better time, maybe since the 1800s in American history, when it's, when it's valuable for us week after week to be being reminded, there is a God, and He knows what's going on, and He's in control. None of this is, it's going to spin out of our control. Sure, happens all the time. But it's not going to spin out of His control. And we as His servants and, and, and people in His kingdom can be calmly engaged with a peace that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. 
We get to continue to be zealous in grace in the midst of this. That's my prayer that God would, would gift us with that type of zeal and that type of grace. So stand with me, if you will, and let's pray together that God would provide this. Father, you are a loving God, and you're a God who takes care of his people. You reveal yourself in mysteries. You save your, you save your people in, like no God can. And you also humble us. And Lord, I pray that for us, that we would be, find ourselves in a time of great concern and a time where many people are afraid to know that we can rely on you. And we can rely, at least to a certain degree, on your people. God, that as we sang, that when we trust in you, you will heal our wounds. You really do, and you really will. And I pray that we will, that will be seen in people's in, in our lives as people engage with us, that people experience the truth that you are a God who saves. And we need to just wait. Wait in truth, worshiping in spirit and in truth. I pray you'll call us to that with every part of our lives. Thank you for the power of your timing with Daniel. Thank you for showing us what a human he is and how much of a God you are. I pray we'll find rest and comfort in that, even as the rest of the world panics, because their king is a king of twisting and turning and lying and perverting. But our king is a God of order who loves and who gives and who sacrifices generously. I pray, Lord, we're good ambassadors of yours, especially in times of difficulty. And I pray this in the name of your magnificent son. Amen.